Grant. It's Pastor Rob. Great to see you today. You know, I remember the first time I took lessons to learn to play guitar. Um, and, and the truth is, I still don't play it very well. I play at it, is what I tell people all the time. But I remember the first time I went in, and I had this, this expectation that I was going to get in there and meet this teacher, and within a couple of months, I would be playing Stairway to Heaven, or I would be railing off these super fast riffs that the guitar heroes of my my teenage years did or i would be fronting a band and doing great things and my guitar teacher was very honest and realistic with me he said look it's great that you want to be able to do those things but in order to do them you first have to understand the fundamentals the basics of playing guitar now if i had to be truly confessional um I, I didn't pay much attention to those fundamentals, and I still am in a position where I don't play guitar very well. But fundamentals, the idea of, of having a basic understanding or a basic set of skills, I think is, is inherent in really getting good at anything or doing anything even respectably well, right? You have to have an, if you're in sports, you have to understand the fundamentals, let's say, of, of football. It, it's great to, to know the rules. That's, that's a great fundamental to have. But the truth is, if you haven't learned the fundamentals of tackling, you're liable to hurt yourself or someone else or just be not of a whole lot of use to your team. That's a fundamental skill that you have to have. If you're going to play baseball, you need to be able to throw and catch and, in theory, hit the ball, right? basic fundamental skills you need to have. Music is no different, right? If you're learning to play piano or you're learning to play guitar or whatever it is, or singing, whatever it is, you have to have some basic understanding of, of theories and of processes and of posture and of all those things that our music teachers are constantly trying to make sure that we're getting, that we understand in order to be great at whatever we're choosing to dive into and investing so much into. The truth is, our faith also comes with some fundamentals. Uh, and when Jesus was asked what those fundamentals are for understanding and following God, what are those basic things that you have to understand and live out in order to build, right, from which everything else comes, um, he actually gave two answers. I'm going to read them out of Matthew 22, 37 through 40, but you can also find it in the book of Luke and in the book of Mark where Jesus effectively says, look, you want to understand the basics, the fundamentals, that, and he calls them the greatest commands, right? Because that's the, the question of the person who asks him, what are, what are the greatest commands? What are the basics that help us make sense of the rest of it? And he gives them two answers. He says this, he says, Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's number one, right? That's fundamental number one. You have to begin by loving God. He says, this is the greatest and most important command. And then I think he throws them sideways, the people who are asking, by giving a second command. He says this, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the laws and the prophets depend on these two commands. The idea is that this, these are the fundamentals from which everything else is possible. In this series, 
what we're going to try to do is to take a look at that second fundamental, that second command, that, sec that second fundamental practice of faith that makes all the rest of it make sense. And, th and that is the focus of this series. It's called Neighborhood Watch because we are love learning to love our neighbors as ourselves. That term neighborhood watch tends to be negative in its connotation, the idea of we're protecting others around us from some external threat. And to, to an extent, watching out for our neighbors includes that. But, but I also want to flip this a little bit on our head and help us understand that rather than using it as a a fear-inducing thing of fearing others and watching out for the concern of others and saying selectively, who who really is my neighbor? Can I trust my neighbor, right? Really, God calls us to expand our view of what who our neighbors are and what our neighborhood is, which begs the question, well, who is our neighbor? You know, when I was a kid, I can pick picture in my mind the neighbors I had. There was Mrs. Kessmeyer who was my kindergarten teacher and you know unfortunately if I did something wrong in kindergarten I'm pretty sure she told my parents before I could spin it <laughs> in my favor for lack of a better term. And then there was Chris and Joe who was a block over and Zach the older kid on the block that we played together all the time. Um, and then there was Brad, a guy who lived next door to us. And, and you know, I didn't realize the value of him as a neighbor until I uh, wrecked my dad's car and destroyed somebody's mailbox. And Brad helped me rebuild that mailbox. He helped me make it right using skills that I didn't have and made a huge difference for me, kept me out of a whole lot of trouble that I could and maybe should have been in. But... Now I have, I have a different set of neighbors, right? I have the Hudsons. I've got two sets of Hudsons, right? I've got Jackson's close by and Culp's close by and Losey's just over yonder. And again, people that, that I know, that we talk to, that contribute to, to my life and I hope to contribute to theirs and that we do, we trust each other. But there's, there's that, that concept of neighbor, while it is true, is only one piece of who our neighborhood, our neighbors and what our neighborhood really is. Um, there's also another view, right? If you think back to, to my childhood, I think back to this wonderful little show called Sesame Street. <laughs> and they used to sing a song that said, who are the people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, right? They used to sing that song. And then there was several verses they would walk through and it was not the person right next door, the person that literally lived right next to you. The list as you go through the verses, they list the postman, the fireman, the baker, the barber, the dentist, the doctor, the shoemaker, the cleaner that cleans your clothes, and the trash collector as the people in your neighborhood. And they finish the song with, well, they're the people that you meet when you're walking down the street. They're the people that you meet each day. And so they, they, that broadens our perspective on who our neighbors are. And I think Jesus clarifies that in his story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, we see the story of this man who's beaten and robbed and left for dead, is what the, what the scripture says. And as he's laying there, a, a priest comes by, someone who proclaims to be a man of God. And the priest sees him laying there and doesn't, doesn't stop to help him in the midst of his near death experience and he just keeps on walking and then a levite someone who's designed to represent the people of god sees him and because the man is not 
touchable or worthy of being touched, he continues to move and just ignores him. And then there's a Samaritan that comes by, uh, someone who is actually enemies with the Jews at times. But he comes by and he scoops the man up and he binds up his wounds and he puts him up in a hotel, spends two days, two days wages to do that. And, and, Clint, and says, I'm going to come back and reimburse you for whatever it costs you, innkeeper, to care for this person. And Jesus, and as he's speaking to the, to the people, says, okay, in verse 36 of Luke 10, says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And they respond, well, the one who showed him mercy, he said. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. He expands this concept of who our neighbors are, is who are those people that we come in contact with and whoever we choose to make our neighbor by interacting with them. And so in many respects, it's the, it's the people at Walmart, it's the people at your job, especially if they are people who are, who are in difficulty and challenge. And those are the things that we tend to shy away from, but this is the discussion that Jesus has as he illustrates for us who we're intended to see as our neighbors. It's not just a matter of proximity, it's not just a matter of trustworthiness or even usefulness to us. It's a matter of, of recognizing that whoever God has put in our path is someone that we share an experience with and in some ways is our neighbor in the context of what Jesus is trying to help us gather. But the question I want to try to answer today, now that we have an understanding of what a neighbor is, and it's, it's, it's a much broader term than we tend to apply to it, what I want to dig into today is why. Why is this command to love our neighbor, why does it mean so much to God, so much so that he puts it at almost an equal level saying it's just like loving me, right? It's almost, if not equal to that, to that command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Why is that so important to him? Well, to do that, I want to go back to the beginning. And literally, I mean that, the book of Genesis. <laughs> I want to go back to the book of Genesis so we can try to understand why this would be so important to God. For that, we're going to look at the book of Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible. You can grab one. I'm going to put it up on your screen as well. It says this, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. That still makes me shudder, right? The idea that God would breathe his breath, right, expelled from his body into us to bring us life. We generally consider exhales a waste, right? It's inhales where I got the oxygen, the exhales, just the leftovers I'm blowing back out. But if you've ever practiced CPR, you know that's not the case. It could be the breath of life to someone who cannot breathe on our own. God did that for the very existence of humanity. 
And, and it indicates that hum humanity has a special role in his eyes and in his creation. In 2005, there was a, an exhibit at the London Zoo um, called People in Their Natural Habitat. And essentially, it was a, four men and four women that were in a habitat or an enclosure at the zoo uh, dressed somewhere similar to kind of think what we expect Adam and Eve to have been wearing after they found out they were naked in the garden, right? Fig leaves and all that stuff. So they're not wearing a whole lot, but they're in there and they're just playing board games together. They're laughing together. They're playing games together. They're just having a picnic. They're just hanging out, doing things that people do together. Well, one of the participants named uh, Tom Mahoney, when I get that right, participated in it, and he explained why they did it. He said, a lot of people think that humans are above other animals. When they see humans as animals here, though, it kind of reminds us that we're not that special. Here's the problem. That's not true. <laughs> Society screams that we are simply a higher form of evolutionary animal, but that is not at all the case. You know, we share something with animals. That, that word in our, our scripture today, where, where in verse 7, where it says that God formed us, that, that's a Hebrew word that means to, to form or fashion in the formation of an object. It's a, a word we would use to describe a potter you know, building a beautiful vessel out of clay. He would sculpt it. He would form it from his hand, with his hands. Or a carver who would be detailing wood, a piece, to make it look and feel exactly like it needed to be. Or a sculptor that is carving out of stone. It's working with your hands. It's, it's applying detail. It's having an artistic vision, right? A creative vision for what something is going to look like and then painstakingly going through the process of forming it into that and making it look that way. He doesn't use that word to describe how he made the stars, right? He just says he made them chucked them up in the sky, all that glory, that in those incredible things that you can look up and see in the evening, countless numbers of stars. It doesn't even say that he used that or did that when he was just bringing creation to existence. He didn't put that kind of effort or energy or meticulous behavior into it. He says he just spoke, spoke it, made it happen, which is a whole other level of power and amazing on its own, but it also tells us something about the value of humanity. Now, the truth is, he also forms from the dust of the earth, which, by the way, dust. Man, I heard, <laughs> heard a sermon from a guy set many, many years ago that still sticks with me as he's talked about dust, reminded us that dust is a nuisance. <laughs> it gets stuck in everything. You could seal up a house for years and come back, ain't nothing else in it but dust because it finds a way to weave itself in and drive you crazy. It's that stuff that you clean and it's back three seconds later. It drives you nuts. And God chose to make us out of that, out of that dust. But he also formed animals from the dust. And I suppose that's where people get the idea that animals and humans are the same. He formed them out of dust as well. But one thing that God did for humanity that he didn't do for anything else, we find in verse 7, he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. He did something, he provided a piece of who he is and used it to bring life where there was none before. And it's the only place in scripture 
the only creature described in scripture that is given this blessing of being breathed in some of who God is. And, and I say it that way because that's how it's described in the parallel description of Genesis. In Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That idea of image of God, he breathed a piece of his image into us. That image of God, the, the Greek term would be the imago Dei. Right? It's, and it's that, that image of God, that imago Dei, that, that sets us apart from any and all things. It sets us apart in our relationship with God. It's a relationship that we're able to have that nothing else on this planet, animal, plant, or otherwise, can have with God. You know, we have a, a cat in our house. Her, house, her name is Stella. She is nervous and anxious and high strung. She does this thing around midnight that um, Heather calls the midnight crazies where she just bolts from one side of the house to the next. Every muscle in her bar body is on fire, right? And she's darting all over the place. If she sees another cat, she gets anxious and her tail you know, fluffs up and she starts to hiss and she's all wound up and fired up. And I just think to myself, man, if that cat could only go lay her anxieties on God, if she could only just go and say, God, I need you to take these from me. <laughs> she can't. She won't. Because human beings are the only people, are the only people, <laughs> we're the only piece of God's creation that can do that that can lay our anxieties upon him. And the truth is, we're also the only portion of God's creation where he is profoundly seeking a relationship with us. He doesn't relate to anybody else that way. That's the presence of the Imago Dei that is uniquely within humanity as his creation. There's also the relationship with nature itself. Genesis also makes it pretty clear that we are responsible for our creation. It says rule over the creation. But the idea is there we are there to be caretakers. In fact, even in our scriptures today, it says there weren't any plants because there weren't yet any men and women to, to work the ground. It's the idea that we have to be present. We are responsible for caring for, watching over, and managing his creation something I think we don't always take as seriously as we should, but it's true. And no other animal does that in all of Scripture. Matt Chandler uses this really great example where he talks about, look, you know, if you've got a pack of wolves that are chasing down dodo birds, and he says dodo birds are stupid, hence the name, kind of makes sense. Um, can't fly, can't move real fast, can't get away. And you've got a pack of wolves that are hungry, they're going to eat all the dodo birds in their area. They are never going to say, hey, you know, there's only five of those left. Maybe we should protect them and find a different food source so that they can replenish or refill. But humans, we do that. We are mindful of the fact that we have a responsibility to care for this creation that God has given us, this relationship that we have that no other part of creation is prepared to have. 
There's also the relationship we have with one another, also the presence of the Imago Dei, this interconnectedness that goes beyond survival needs, right? This the concepts of, of marriage and monogamy and family. You know, in most of the animal kingdom, eventually you kick your kids out because they're a threat to your power. I hope that's not how we view family here. But there's also a, an understanding that God imparts with us this basic value and dignity that comes with every human life. I think that's the, the most disturbing thing for me about abortion is that it's this attack on the value and the dignity of human life. It devalues it when God has established a basic value. The Imago Dei, the image of God is tarnished. Yeah, it's tarnished by the fall. It's tarnished by our mistakes. It's tarnished by evil, but it's present. It's present in our neighbors too. And here's the rub for us. It's present in equal amounts to ourselves. And I think that's something we struggle to understand. We struggle to see. Because if they are equal in value, if they have an equal amount of the Imago Dei, the image of God, this basic dignity, this fundamental difference that separates them from the rest of all creation, and that they share it with us, with me, equally. That means they are worthy of the same grace I would afford myself, recognizing that we all make mistakes and we need forgiveness. They are worthy of the same respect that I would afford myself or want for myself, that we, we all have a history that informs how we see the world and that at times it's flawed. They're worthy of the same care for their feelings and the love contained in the words that we use to convey that. We have to be careful of that because I would want that for myself. That's, again, part of the Imago Dei within me that I have to see within them. They're worthy of the same time that I would allot to myself, that most precious of commodities that we hold on to so tightly. They're worthy of the same mercy that I want God to have on me. And they're worthy of the same love that I would afford for myself and want for myself that sees them as valuable in God's sight, as image bearers of him. But why does that matter to God? Well, because essentially loving our neighbors is to, in and of itself, love the very image of God. It is our fulfillment of that second commandment that makes it possible, that is so critical to living out the first. We really can't demonstrate our love for who God is if we can't love those who are made in his image. And that's, that's important for us to understand moving forward as we go into this series, Neighborhood Watch, as we talk about what it means to be a good neighbor. But, but I wanted to start off with understanding why that matters, because it does. It impacts my life, your life, the world around us. It impacts those who are lost and those who are found. It is the place where faith becomes tangible, becomes real, and becomes valuable to the world around us. Because as much as you know, there is a component of our faith that is between me and God, just as you have one between you and God, that relational peace that only comes with the Imago Dei, there is the connection we're intended to have with one another. 
all of us who contain that peace, who have all had the breath of life breathed into our nostrils. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do four things moving forward as we go through this series. The first is to embrace. Embrace the reality that you are, you are an image bearer of God. You are loved and cherished regardless of what you might have done or been through, and you are blessed to bear his imprint. He has breathed life into you. And you need to know that. You need to know that you are loved before you can love others. The second is to surrender. Surrender your preconceived notions of others to God. Allow him to determine how you're going to see them. Choose to see the best of others. Choose to recognize that their value is equal to yours in every respect and that they are worthy of all the same things that I would want afforded to me. It's called the golden rule, right? Number three, pray. Pray for God to transform our eyes and our hearts when encountering others. We walk into conversations, we meet people on the street, or we see people. We make assumptions about who they are and what they are about. And the truth is, we need our hearts transformed in order to see them differently. And finally, number four, step out in faith. Jesus risked much and gave much for us so that we could do the same for the world. We are called to be good neighbors because in loving others, we are also loving our God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.